BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, and welcome to the When to Jump podcast. We're only a few words in, but you've probably already noticed by now, I am not your regular host, Mike Lewis. I'm Alex Abnos, I produce the show, and I'll be filling in for Mike on the next couple episodes. There's a reason for this. You may have noticed his hoarse voice in the last several weeks, and that's because of an actual medical issue with his vocal cords. But don't worry, it's nothing major. He'll be making a full recovery and will be back hosting the show in a few weeks after giving his voice a chance to rest. Now, I'm obviously nowhere near the resource Mike is when it comes to making jumps and, you know, giving you advice and taking questions. So we are also going to hit pause on the bit at the front where Mike answers questions from you, the listeners, about making jumps in your own lives. I will say, though, that as the producer that actually listens and puts together these shows every week, that is often one of my favorite parts of the show. So please continue to send in your questions. You can go to whentojump.com and share your story or ask a question by hitting the share button at the top of the page. You could also send an email to jump at mcmillan.com. If you want to send Mike a get well soon note, either of those ways, I'm sure he'd appreciate it. And that's totally fine, too. Our episode this week features Jason Dunford. Jason is an athlete that competed at the highest level of his sport. As a swimmer, he competed in the 2008 and 2012 Olympics for Kenya, and he was the country's flag bearer in London. He retired from swimming in 2014, and Mike spoke to him recently as he was preparing to make a big jump in an entirely different direction. It has nothing to do with swimming, but it has everything to do with the place Jason is from and how he wants to make it better. I thought this was a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm just going to drop you right in now. Here we are sitting uh, in the living room of your of your uh, graduate school apartment housing space in Palo Alto. You're a second year at graduate school business at Stanford. You're an Olympic swimmer. You are uh, uh, an, an African continent native who has a very strong tie to the to the space and and belief that there's a lot of power that can be brought to the people there through media. You know, what are the jumps you've taken? Tell us a little bit. Oh gosh, yeah, there've been a few. Um, as you said, Olympian. So first Olympic swimmer to ever qualify from Kenya and got honored with the biggest honor of my life to carry the flag in the opening ceremony of the London Games. No big and, deal. Uh, you know, <laughs> we tried. And growing up in Kenya, it, it didn't seem that you could, you know, a Kenyan could ever qualify for the Olympics at swimming. So it was definitely seemed like a pipe dream. I really wanted to go there. I used to watch the Olympics a lot. I was like, oh, it'd be so cool to be in the Olympics, but not a chance. It wasn't in, in my consciousness. Um, and it took really my, I went to school in the UK and I had this talent for swimming and it was a coach there who looked at me, a man called Peter O'Sullivan. And he's like, you could really, you could have the talent if you wanted to go all the way to the top, highest levels of the sport, but you, you need to specialize. So when I was in my junior year of high school, 
is when I, I, I really decided to focus. And I guess that was me taking my first jump. Let's really give this swimming thing a go. I've got someone who's got the belief in me. My parents were willing to back whatever. I was lucky they were happy for me to take whatever path I wanted. They didn't want to ever put pressure. Although looking back, there was a little bit of pressure towards the <laughs> swimming thing. There always is. But yeah, and then it took looking to the, the US for college and coming to Stanford as an undergrad and swimming on a great team, which again, was not a normal thing to do out of the high school I was at in the UK at that time. Everybody was looking at um, English universities. And yeah, so that was that. And then coming to Stanford, just really getting stuck in. I came in onto the team as a walk-on because my times were actually, though decent, was nothing. Stanford had just recruited the top three high school recruits in the nation oh my <laughs> for God. my class. Unbelievable. So I was like, yeah, they're like, oh yeah, you, you look like you're okay, but we're not that interested you know we recruited these guys so I got in um, on academics um, I didn't do any recruiting and then during my first year freshman year is when I really started breaking out because for the first time in my life I was training with a big team I'd only ever trained with my brother who's actually also an Olympian and we went together and he followed me to Stanford so that's a whole nother story <laughs> of getting him to follow me in my well not getting him encouraging him in that way um, so yeah that's a hell of a journey that's amazing um, and what you know, was it about sticking around? Because as a walk-on, for those who don't know, it's not exactly like you're given the prime spot on the pedestal. You're kind of invited to try, but you started out at the bottom of the pack in some ways. How did you decide to kind of stick with it? Well, to give you some context, I'd got into Stanford by about April, accepted my place, and then I actually went and swam a competition in South Africa. It was like the junior nationals, oh, wow. um, where a lot of the best sw junior swimmers from the continent would come and swim. And I did really well there, and I put up some very solid times. And suddenly the ears of the coaches perked, perked up, up a bit. They're like, oh, okay, maybe yeah. he's bringing something. That's awesome. Uh, so that helped, but definitely my first year was a grind because I was still so unproven. Yeah. You know, I think some of the big high school recruits had shown that they could step up for a big meet. Yes, I'd shown to a degree, but it was still like in this new environment, what, what was I going to produce? So I, I got drilled pretty hard that first year, but made it through. It's amazing. <laughs> it reminds me, I mean, I was not at the Olympic level, squash isn't in the Olympics, but when I went to play at Dartmouth College, I was actually the first time that I'd been on a team for squash. And I felt very much like you, like you're around all these other athletes. You just want to, for me, it was this eagerness. And I actually think in some ways it's, it's not having that background mm. that actually pushed the jump further. Free your mind. Yeah. And I, I had that with two contrasting Olympics. I had a very free mind in Beijing, my first Olympics qualified just stoked to be you know that first Kenyan to qualify my brother qualified after me so we went together as the two only swimmers Kenya had ever qualified for the Olympics just wide-eyed you know it wasn't too concerned on the result totally exceeded my expectations fifth I came fifth I actually broke the Olympic record on the way to the final it got subsequently rebroken but you know I I was really right there for a medal going into London the weight of expectation got got on me you know I was ranked fourth in the world going in and that kind of played with my mind so oh my certainly that there's something to that freedom of thinking and yeah. just not having an expectation. Absolutely. There's this underdog feel of yeah. I can do anything. Yeah. So talk a little bit about the jump that athletes make. How difficult was it to give up this career where you, I mean, fourth in the world, like mm. top of your game, top of the top in terms of competing at the Olympics, and yet all athletes have to jump at some point. Yeah. Can you describe how how that journey was to, to not yeah. even, we'll get to what you're doing now, yeah. but just leaving that world behind and yeah. starting a new identity? Yeah, it was really challenging. I was, I would, I mean, looking back, it was probably mild depression, what I was going through. And I don't think it's uncommon for athletes because you've been on this constant training journey. You've got this, these endorphins pulsing through your veins every day. So that gives you kind of that feeling. 
and then you're you know you're at the top of the world and suddenly like that's there's that feeling of oh i have to start from scratch admittedly i was in a very privileged position having gone through stanford and got a degree from here and had worked on a master's degree as well but there's still very much a feeling that oh wow now i'm starting at the bottom of the pile and i struggled through that for a couple of years i had a degree in environmental science so it was a very very passionate about sustainability and combating some of the big environmental problems in the world. So I worked a little bit of that, worked in solar energy and was starting to find my footing, but still felt that I needed something else. Now that I was starting to figure out that I was going to be in business in some way, that's when I took the jump to apply to business school. And it, again, it was a mentor who inspired me to do that. He's actually a professor at the business school, uh, one of the most famous professors here called uh, Bill Meehan, and he's a mentor to my wife and me. And he's the one who encouraged me to again take that jump so you know there's definitely I can't say it's all me there's definitely always that outside influence and guidance that I've been lucky to get from my community my family sure my friends yeah um, you never really jump alone right? yeah yeah there's a lot of that do you did you feel it took time for the oh this is Jason the Olympian kind of identity to go away when you wanted to be taken as someone different than just an athlete and a swimmer and all that oh absolutely I think it held me back mentally and in thinking about what I could do intellectually I think there's a little bit of implicit bias against athletes that they're never going to quite make it, you know, in the intellectual sphere because they've dedicated so much here. So I think there was a little bit of that that played on me and thinking, oh, wow, I just all I can, I can only be productive with my body. Yeah. You know, it kind of plays on you a little bit. So getting over that, um, I, you know, coming to business school, I kind of kept that identity as an Olympian on the down low, which just seems crazy now because I'm very proud of what I've achieved. But there was like, I didn't want to be bucketed as that athlete again, that jock. You know, I think that certainly is a thing. It's not the worst thing to be bucketed as, right. but it's, 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 yeah. it's something there. So, but now just, yeah, and then trying to find my footing here and, and really work hard and dedicate myself academically in a way, perhaps... I wouldn't say I didn't do well academically as an undergrad, but certainly sport was such a big part of every day and it drains you a lot. So I think there are sacrifices. Yeah. Um, Stanford does it better than any other school, I think, in terms of the balance of having really high level athletes plus, you know, really accomplished academically. Yeah. But certainly there is a bit, there has, I mean, there's sacrifice. It's just how many hours there are in a day. <laughs> For sure. How many hours were you in the pool during season? I mean, it was. The twenty plus hours a week of training. Jeez. Yeah. What did so. you think about when you swam? Um, I mean, oftentimes it was the set. So you know, what are we? You're so focused on what you're doing. If it's a if it's a hard competitive set, usually in warm up your mind wanders and you're just warming up. But when it comes down to it, I mean, there's a lot of pain. It's hard to think of anything else yeah. and just how to drive drive for the wall. Um, trying to get your mind set so you can think about how to hold your technique together in those in those final few moments of a race because when that's really hurting but uh that was something about training with the big team too is it allowed you to disconnect your mind a little bit from the pain the physical pain you're going through because at the end of each race you're kind of there's some banter there's back and forth there's jockeying you're like encouraging each other so that was a big thing about getting to race guys every day and you know I, the guys on my team were incredible as world champions olympians world record holders it was quite an environment to be a part of wow yeah.
so let's talk about your next jump. You, you kind of left the, the athletic world to go, you know, go back to school. You had worked in business a bit, but now it seems like it's the biggest jump of your life coming up. Can you talk about the ventures you're looking at doing as you, as you wrap up business school? Absolutely. So I came in with a mind that my focus is going to probably be on sustainability. I want to look at starting a business. Um, I got inspired by a talk by a professor here um, that he gives at Herb Grossbeck. It's called Risks, Rewards, and Entrepreneur's Path. And I thought, okay, let's really look into this. I knew Sanford's famous for its entrepreneurship. So came in and then started looking at the solar market in emerging markets, uh, solar industry in emerging markets, and working on an idea with my wife, who's also, I'm lucky that she also got enrolled at the business school at the same time as me. And we eventually come around to a business we've now launched called Safigen which does energy management for um, industry and, and businesses in emerging markets. We're working with our first few pilot customers in, in Kenya. So it's sensors that we place on machines, sends data to the cloud, we do predictive analytics on the data we're seeing on energy consumption, because it's a big problem for these businesses. It can be 40, 50% of their cost because the grid's unreliable. There's lots of other challenges. So we found a real customer pain point that we're now working with, going through the design process. And she's now running that with a team. I actually then found myself doing a media thing, <laughs> similar to what you're doing, out of the Africa Business Conference last year. Started doing some interviews, and now that's morphing into um, working with a few people at business school and also in the, uh, some developers looking at developing a uh, pan-African digital media platform in line with also my own um, my own interviewing and uh, JTalk Live. <laughs> nice. So we'll see where it goes. Again, it's early days. We're just you know, taking shots into the dark, it feels like sometimes, yeah. but seeing what sticks and where we can build it out from here. Wow. Startup journey. So the the um, sustainable energy company, that's going to be based in Nairobi? Yes. You'll be based in Nairobi? Yeah, my, my wife and me will be moving to Nairobi in July. So that's a, yeah, yeah not, I mean, not a huge jump because you obviously grew up there in some degree, but you still, you're going to be starting two companies, maybe, you know, maybe more, see where it goes. It's <laughs> a lot. Uh, yeah, no, it does seem like a lot. It feels right, but it definitely, I wouldn't say there's no anxiety and angst and nerves around it. Um, you know, uh, we've lived now, I met my wife as a, when we were first years at Stanford undergrad. Oh, so wow. We're both back here for the second time. This podcast episode should be sponsored by Stanford. <laughs> I know, they're getting a lot of, yeah. a lot of mileage. You guys have like nine degrees from here <laughs> combined. That's the plan, right? Yeah, exactly. them up. I think we'll be done after this. Yeah. But yeah, certainly, um, you know, moving to Nairobi, it's an exciting place to be. Yeah. But definitely, that, it brings its own challenges. But uh, we feel very good about our decision and, I mean, certainly Safigen is off the races and really feels like there's a real need there and a, a real business, that, a really profitable business that can be built out of that. Uh, on the media side, there's, you know, there seems to be a lot of potential and growth in, in mobile, I'm sorry, in mo yeah, mobile content consumption across Africa. And we're trying to build our, build our business to be suitable as a, as a content platform for mobile. So wow. And how would you describe um, Safigen to your grandmother if, or someone who's just not kind of technology mm. literate, what are you guys doing? So I don't even know if this would make it more literate, but we'll give it a go. So it's like an operating system for factories. Still too jargony, yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe like, I, th I feel like even grandmas now have been on a computer and know what Windows is. Yeah, uh, maybe. I mean, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, let's see. What's, okay, we're helping businesses and industry in emerging markets switch to cleaner, smarter energy. There you go. All right. Yeah, yeah, a grimace, doing. but I think yeah. I'll take that. That's good. And <laughs> She'll then, give a much better pitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have to have her on then. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and your 
I mean, uh, your media platform and your kind of emerging ideas and ventures is that, you know, why, why Africa? Why, why is this important? Well, I mean, I am Kenyan, you know, born and bred uh, and feel a deep connection to the continent as a whole. And that's actually some thinking that I've been doing and the way my thinking has morphed over the last years has become a much more feeling of an identity around the whole continent rather than just specifically Kenya, because I believe in, in the unity. If we can all start, all us Africans can start thinking more like that. I think it's going to help um, bring up the whole continent and will benefit Kenya as well. Um, and we go faster and farther together. And actually, I'll be giving a talk on that as part of the low keynotes program later this quarter. So oh, cool. I'm uh, putting that in a speech that I'll be delivering soon. To who? Uh, uh, it will be to at the business school, but it'll yeah. be on YouTube. So That's it'll amazing. Be, it'll be a public. It's a nine minute speech. It's, it's, the low keynotes is it's a program that the business school runs. It's kind of like TED Talks. Cool. Um, if people know TED. Um, so I'll be delivering that. But yeah, just feeling a deep sense of connection to yeah. the continent. You know, my family's been in Africa uh, for over, uh, you know, well, approaching 150 years. Uh, I had, you know, of, of my grandparents, my one grandfather was South, from South Africa, origins as a Lithuanian Jew that had moved to, to Africa. One, uh, his wife, my grandmother, was born in Kenya. Her, her father, again, a Lithuanian Jew who'd escaped the pogroms and found his way to Kenya. My mom, on my father's side, his mother was uh, born and brought up in Egypt. Jeez, um, wow. In Alexandria, to parents of Greek and Austria-Hungarian oh origin. And then my, his father was uh, British from Newcastle. Oh. But both parents born and bred in Kenya, both Kenyan citizens, proud Kenyan citizens, built businesses. But my father's built a business in Kenya over 40 years. Wow. So there's deep connection and deep gratitude to the whole continent. I mean, I have you know, a history of family who were refugees escaping persecution and they were taken in by communities in yeah. Africa. A very different time back then, of course, you know, with colonization and all that that went, you know, was in existence. But um, yeah, that's where we are today. And, you know, very much connected. Wow. <laughs> and where can people go to, uh, to learn more about all the different things? Well, right now we're developing our, our website at afreality.com, uh, which is the name of the, the Pan-African Digital Media Company. And then um, I'm also developing my own website at jasondunford.com. But you can find us on Facebook, Jason Dunford and Afreality is where we exist right now. That's awesome. And what would you leave? You know, one of the things we try to do is give people a nugget of, of a real kind of tool or, um, or, or tactic from the folks that we talk to around jumping. You know, is there anything that you would impart to others as they think of making a jump? Um, I mean, for me, it was just trying to connect with people that I love being around. That's it just felt different than an everyday connection. I mean, getting really involved in the Africa Business Club as an example, it's just it's something deeply personal and important to me. I had no idea where it'd lead. So oftentimes serendipity can come from just putting yourself out there in places that you love and you love to be. And I think that can be very helpful. And I can't overstress like something that I've actually historically been pretty bad at, but asking people for help and advice can be very powerful. And, you know... I think I had been held back in the past by not wanting to do that, feeling like I can figure it out all on my own. And that's, right. I think, a lot of high-performing people feel that way. But get, putting yourself out there asking for help, people are very willing and wanting to give it to you and give you their time, particularly if you, know, if they, if you can show passion and optimism and they see something in you. So that's something I think just go out there with. 
with that frame of mind. Absolutely. We call it letting yourself be lucky. Just put yourself out and see what happens. Yeah. Jason Dunford, two-time Olympian, first Olympic swimmer from Kenya to represent the country and now uh, the, the subcontinent in what you're doing. I appreciate you coming on the show, letting me come into your living room here in Palo Alto uh, as you launch uh, not one but two different jumps with your wife. Thanks, thanks for coming on the When to Jump podcast. Great to see you. <laughs> thanks for listening to the When to Jump podcast. The show is produced by me, Alex Abnos, with help from Katie Ferguson and Becky Celestina. The senior editor for Macmillan Podcasts is Alyssa Martino. You can find out more about When to Jump and listen to all of our other great shows over at us.macmillan.com podcasts. For more information about When to Jump, visit whentojump.com, and you can follow them on pretty much every social media platform out there at whentojump, all one word. I hope you enjoyed Mike's chat with Jason Dunford. Mike will be back in a couple weeks. But until then, I'm Alex Abnos, and thanks for listening. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.